welcome to Pressing On, a podcast where we will be looking into truths for guys as we live on this journey of life. Well, it's February of 2022, and it's been a cold and snowy year for us here, at least in Cleveland, it's been that way. It has been as they predicted that it would be a rough winter. I'm your host, Scott Lessing, prison campus pastor at Grace Church, where we have three locations in Northeast Ohio now, Middleburg Heights, Olmstead Falls, and our soon-to-be-launching prison campus at Lorraine Correctional in Grafton, Ohio. Pressing on is for guys who want to go deeper as we seek God, all the while finding practical insight to live differently. We look into real life and we talk through how to grow, how to become a better, improved version of ourselves. Together, we will press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. We will press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. In other words, we press on to trust in Jesus, to desperately depend on him to transform our lives as we become improved version of ourselves tomorrow. Well, Jordy, tell us about our friends who believe in what we're doing and want to encourage our listeners with some great, what I, I love great coffee, even <laughs> though you don't. Yeah. It's funny that I'm the one who talks about the coffee. I don't drink coffee. I think it's hilarious. Blackburnian and Coffee <laughs> is a micro batch roasting company based here in Cleveland. Blackburnian and Coffee uses high quality, fair trade beans from farms and importers that treat their workers with dignity. We also know the owner and roaster of this great company, Sarah Stumbo, which Ooh. is why I'm happy to do this pitch because I believe in them and the quality of their product. Yeah, we if love Sarah. You would Josiah. like to win a free bag of coffee from Blackburnian and Coffee, simply email us within 30 days of when the episode drops, but don't wait 30 days because the first person to email us is going to get a free bag of Blackburnian and Coffee. And Jordy, you can't keep emailing <laughs> us to get free coffee for your wife. She actually doesn't drink coffee either. I know. She will soon. So no coffee <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Mike and Susan already emailed us. They just emailed us just now. They love good coffee. Well, hey, listen, this month we have a great topic that will, I think, challenge us, but at the same time, it's going to encourage us. And not just the guys listening, but it's also going to encourage all the women that are listening. We have 18% of our listeners are women, which I'm actually really excited about that. But we're going to be talking about husbands on this show and how God has called us to live as husbands. We're going to be discussing loving our wives the way that Jesus calls us to do so. So joining us today from Chesterland, Ohio, is Mike and Susan Swiger. Mike is the director, the executive director of True Freedom Ministries. And before we dive into your story, Mike and Susan, Mike, can you tell us just a little bit about True Freedom Ministries and what you guys do? Absolutely. Uh, True Freedom is a ministry headquartered in Cleveland, Ohio, where we do three silos of ministry. We do addiction recovery programming in the inner city of Cleveland. We do a homeless outreach where we serve about 17,000 hot meals a year, and we distribute about 20,000 garments of clothing every year to the homeless in the city of Cleveland. But the largest thing we do is prison ministry. Uh, we do worship services, Bible studies, discipleship, character development program in prisons all across Ohio, and we average about 200 classes, services, and programs every month in the prison system. And Mike, that's where you and I met. We met about five years ago as somebody said, you have to meet this guy named Mike Swagger. He's the prison ministry director in Northeast Ohio, and he's just a great communicator. So I didn't trust that, as I usually don't trust when people tell me that. I want to meet them face-to-face -face and sit down and have lunch with them, which we did. And 
what we found out is that we have a common friend, a guy who mentored me and a guy who mentored you, Lowell Snyder, and he lived on my street in Grafton, Ohio, and he also mentored you when you were living in Grafton, Ohio. Lived on the same street. <laughs> <laughs> we're, you guys are going to hear that story. Later. You know what? Why don't, you, why don't we let that be a lead-in for you and Susan to spend just a few minutes uh, just telling us a little bit about your story, a very compelling story, and I think it really it accentuates what we're going to be talking about today about loving well, and I think that both of you guys have done that incredibly well for one another, but can you just, within a few minutes, just share your story of why you lived in Grafton? Sure. I was a student at Case Western, where I actually met my wife, and I was arrested in 1989, October 1989, as an accomplice for murder. I was charged, I was tried and convicted of involuntary manslaughter, and I ended up being a resident at Lorraine Correctional Institution about a quarter mile from your home. I was one of the first prisoners ever to arrive there. The prison opened in May of 1990. I got there in June of 1990. There was no chaplain. There was no chapel program. I had gotten saved in the county jail. So I was trying to, as an inmate, trying to get something established there. So I started writing to local ministries to try to get some resources. So I wrote to the local Gideons, asked that they would donate some Bibles to us at the prison. And I got a box of Bibles back with a business card taped to the top of the box from Mr. Lowell Snyder. He was the president of the local oh. Gideons. And it was the only business card I'd ever seen with someone's picture on it. Hmm. So I wrote him back and thanked him. And I asked him, would they consider coming to their prison to do a, a, a worship service on a Sunday? And they had never done that before, but they agreed. And then we wow. arranged it. <clears throat> I met Lowell Snyder on March 28th. 1991. I remember that because it was my birthday. And uh, we hit it off magically. And from that time forward, the Gideons did a monthly service for the next 10 years. Oh my gosh. Wow. And Lowell built into my life for all that time. And then in fact, when I was released from prison many years later, the next day, Lowell was at my house taking me to breakfast. And then when I got involved in ministry, I asked him to come on our board. And then when we launched True Freedom 10 years ago, he was the first call I made to see if he'd be interested in being a founding board member. Hmm. So Lowell's had a tremendous impact on my life. He, he was at my ordination ceremony. He was at our wedding. Just a tremendous man of God, as you know. Amen. Yeah, I was arrested October the 5th, 1989, a month and a half before our wedding date. Uh, we had been engaged for about five months. We bought a house in Euclid. We were remodeling the house. We were doing all the things you're supposed to do. We had bridal showers, and we were doing all the pre-marriage planning. In that day, I was working as a co-op engineer at PCC Aerofoils, and that morning I flew down to North Carolina for my job. And when I came home, the police were waiting at our house where I was arrested. And that was the last time we were together physically for 17 years. Mm. And Susan, while Mike was gone, the police came to your home? Uh, yes, we were at the house that we had bought in Euclid, and I was addressing our wedding invitations. And I had a knock at the door, and it was I think it was too plainclothes policemen and they were looking for Mike and I thought I, I have no idea what's going on and that was just God's providence because I didn't know what was going on and in retrospect my answers to them probably were almost comical to them because I had so no idea of what was happening that I could only honestly answer their questions I'm sure it saved me from a boatload of trouble <laughs> because I didn't know the answers to the questions. So I waited inside the home. I talked to my uh, brother-in-law. And when Mike came home, I hadn't looked outside. I didn't know the police cars were waiting, that policemen were waiting. I had no idea. When he arrived in our driveway, all of a sudden I looked outside and there were police everywhere. And I saw him from a distance and that was it. That was the last time I saw him. I had no interactions with the police department to that point in my life and had a crash course and what to do and not do and try to find out information. It was all just a complete 
puzzle to me. I called my parents very late at night and I said, my fiance has been arrested. I need a lawyer. And my parents, as any good parents would do, they jumped in and, and got a lawyer. But it was a, a journey of the next almost 17 years of my relationship with my parents, my relationship with my family, my relationship with Mike, trying to make that all work. And at the time that Mike was arrested, neither one of us were Christians. I attended church every Sunday growing up, but had not um, heard the gospel in any way that I knew of. And I just thought, I don't know how this is happening right now in my life. And I looked to Mike, but I also looked to my family. I was overwhelmed by having absolutely no information to go from. And so it was just the journey that God took me. Eventually, I got saved two years later after just a very difficult time trying to please everyone, trying to walk a fence of everyone, trying to be pleased, not knowing the situation with Mike, not knowing the story. It just was an evolution over the next 17 years. God is gracious that he doesn't tell us how long things are going to be sometimes. Then you just are sort of day by day and just being able to learn what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to be a Christian by myself, and what it was to be a Christian with Mike in different seasons of the relationship that God took us through. That's an amazing, I don't know how you did it. And I don't know how, Susan, I don't know how you did it. And Mike, I don't know how you did it. For both of you to be separated with Susan, you knew nothing about this before Mike got arrested. So it was a surprise for you that day. And Mike, I'm sure it was a surprise for you too, that happened, right? That you got arrested and then the, the next 17 years, like, that's a long time. It is. It was a surprise. Uh, my first response was relief because I've been carrying this around for 18 months waiting mm-hmm. for this other shoe to drop. And then terror because I knew this was going to be a sensationalized case. My father was a politician in office. My brother was in law school, and it made national news. They made a movie out of wow. the case. So that's not the way you want to go through the judicial system. Uh, I had prayed that night when I got arrested for the first time like in 10 years because at that point in my life, I was an angry atheist or agnostic probably at best. And I just prayed, Lord, if you even exist, let me die in my sleep tonight. Mm. And then from that point, uh, it was only six weeks until I got saved. Oh, my goodness. And then revolutionized my life. So I'm in jail facing the death penalty, trying to witness to my fiance, <laughs> who's never had a speeding ticket. Things were certainly on the wrong foot there. But in, in truly, God reached Susan the only way he could, not through me, <laughs> because it had to be another route. He's very gracious to us that way. But yeah, it was a shock, but truly, that's how I got saved. I was discipled when I was in prison. I'm 100% the product of prison ministry, which is why God has called us back to this field. Yeah. It's incredible. I always assumed, because I'd heard the story, I always assumed like two to three years, and I didn't hear 17 until this morning. (laughs) That's unfathomable, probably because I was 11, 17 years ago. (laughs) I just can't even comprehend that. It's an incredible story. Yeah, when we got married... I was in a Bible study from my church that I was attending for all the entire time that I became a Christian, which was completely intrinsic in my faith growing. But I was in a Bible study with fellow youth group leaders and the one girl who I don't know how it was possible that she didn't know part of Mike's and my story, having attended our wedding, I just don't know how we skipped over that in all the Bible study. But she said, oh, we'd been back from our honeymoon like a week or two. We were at the first Bible study. And she's like, oh, have you had your first argument yet? And I just started laughing. And I was like, (laughs) how old are you? And she was like, I'm 22. And I was like, we had our first argument when you were one. She had no idea the time that had gone on somehow. So That's funny. Well, guys, thank you for being here with us. Your story is very compelling on the love side, love and grace and forgiveness, as well as just working through a lot of hard times. But Mike... When you and I were talking about this, and I invited you to be part of the Pressing On podcast, specifically for this month, and I did it very intentionally, right? Because our prison campus is launching this coming Monday, which is the 28th. And 
I really, I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. Mike's going to bring this amazing message about prison and, you know, like, how can we reach those who are unreachable? And, you know, I was ready to hear that. And Mike said, I think that God wants me to talk about Ephesians 5 and how to love your wife. And I was, I literally sat back in my chair as I was driving. And so I was like, Mike, tell me more about that. So what made you want to pursue that topic for our listeners why is this so important to you? Part of what I do in ministry, I do a lot of crisis counselings, a lot of crisis interventions, and I see people at their worst. People get arrested, overdose, death, going to morgues with parents to see their child who died of an overdose. So I'm in a lot of crisis situations. And earlier that day, I've been in a, a marriage counselling session with a couple who were not involved in the justice system. And the fundamental problem they had was utter disobedience to Ephesians 5. And that's so Jesus says, if you love me, you follow my commandments. Ephesians 5 lays out what you should be doing, and you're actively choosing not to. So that was a conviction I had. But this passage was very profound in my own life as a husband and how I treat my wife. When we talked about that topic, it was heavy on my heart, and it was something that it's not a passage that men, whether they're single, married, or uh, about to be married, should take lightly. It's something we actively need to pursue and seek to put into our hearts every day. What's really funny about this, I, I don't know if I told you this when we were talking on the phone when you told me this. For the previous two weeks, my son's in a small group in Jordy's ministry, and his small group leader called me and said, hey, we're going through Ephesians 5, the second half, 18 through 33. I'm not married. Would you mind, like, coming in and helping us talk through this so these guys can get, like, some practical understanding? Like, how do you actually do this? So I was like, sure. And you know what was funny is the first week, I thought it was just going to be one week. The first week, we spent the entire time they wanted to hammer out, what does it mean to be submissive to your husband? And which there's nothing wrong with wanting to know that. And But I think it's so common, especially for men in Christian circles, to focus more on that part of it than on the part that God calls us to, which we're going to dive into today. So we're actually, as we go through this, we're going to stay away from the submission part for the wife because we want to focus as men on what we're called to do, right? As men, yeah. So we're going to do that. I'm going to dive into the scripture real quick, and I'm going to focus on Ephesians 5, verses 1, 2, 15 to 18, and 21. I'll stop there, and then, Mike, you're going to be diving into 25 through 33 with us, and and Susan, you're going to be adding commentary along the way, okay, on how you, maybe you've seen Mike do this well. So that's where we're going to be today for our listeners, and verses 1 and 2 say this, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So what I take out of those scriptures are two things, is that we, we're called to love God and love others, and we're called to do so sacrificially. And remember, this is setting up the second half of the scriptures, verses 21 through 33, which is going to be talking about, like, how do we actually practically live this out? Verse 15 says this, be very careful then how you live. So I find that fascinating. He tells us to love God, love others, and do so sacrificially. The, the next thing that really popped out to me was, but be very careful how you live your life. This is a warning that this is really hard to do. And if you're not careful, you're going to really mess up big time and make a lot of mistakes. So be very careful how you live. Verse 16 says, make the most out of every opportunity because the days are evil. And there are so many times that maybe I want to 
I, I find myself doing this probably more with my kids than I do with Maureen, but I, I want to pick every battle. So there are things that I have to let go because I need to make the most out of every opportunity. It's not worth it. Verse 17, it says, don't be foolish. It says, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You combine that with the previous two ver- verses. It, it's setting us up to say, I need to love more than I pick on. Like for me, I'm naturally drawn to, I can be super critical and pick out every flaw of your story. Like that's just, my dad's a, an attorney, retired attorney. I can do that so quickly. And in my mind, I'm always fighting this battle of trying to pick out your flaws of your story or your faults. And instead of looking at the best in people, right? Looking for the best intentions for them. And then verse 18 is very interesting. It says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this is really incredible that there's, he compares these two, alcohol and being filled with the Spirit. Why? Because what is alcohol, when you drink too much and it gets in your bloodstream, it takes over your body, right? It leads you to make bad decisions, uh, do bad things, think bad things, and it is what is guiding you. So he's saying, don't do that. Don't be led by the alcohol, but be led by the Holy Spirit. So what's life-giving? Blood. And there's this comparison with alcohol in your bloodstream and the Holy Spirit leading your life from a soul perspective. And so that's really what he's saying here is, don't let the ways of the world lead you and guide you, but let the Holy Spirit get into the life stream of your soul and lead you from deep within your soul. And then he goes on to say, also, we want you to praise God often and always give thanks for everything that God has done. So when you look at it through this lens, what we're going to be talking about, what he's saying is, I want you guys to have a positive look for the best in people be imitators of me, do it God's way. Don't do it the ways of the world or what you think is best, or even your best intentions aren't always good sometimes. I want you to always do it through this filter. And then he leads us to the the one statement in the scripture that's super confusing because we're like, wait a minute, how are we supposed to do this? He says in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that sets us up for what we're going to be talking about today. Together submission, as well as a together submission to the Lord, this three-way submission where we're submitting to one another, we're submitting to God. And I believe that Paul, what he's saying here is he actually sets us up for this mutual submission in three domestic relationships. We're going to be talking about marriage, but he goes on to talk about the slave owner and the slave and the parents and the kids. And so... What we're talking about today is going to be marriage, but we have to know if we don't look at what was Paul trying to tell us, then we can misshape the scripture for what it was intended for. And so he's calling us to have mutual submission. We see that also in verse 33, where he says, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So there's this mutual submission in verse 21 and 33, and this is what I think Paul's telling us, is that we need to submit to each other out of a deep respect for love for one another and for God. And my question that I always have is, what is submission? We're going to just tap on this and then move. But if I were to say it very quickly and plainly that this is going to lead our conversation, but submission is yielding to one another. Like when you're going onto the highway, there's two cars going onto the highway and you have to yield to the other car. It doesn't mean that you stop and you let them take over. It's a yielding to one another. And if that's our visual for what submission is, 
for me, it makes it a lot easier to understand if that's what submission is. So the husband is not about power or throwing his weight around. Jesus reminds us, and, and Jesus is a great example of this when he reminds us about the washing of the feet, that leading is truly about loving while serving those around you. So all of that to lead us into husbands loving your wives. And Jordy, do you, do you have that scripture pulled up? Yeah. Could you read verses 25 through 33, just so we it, it'll lead us into this great conversation about how we're to love our wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Yeah. So, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. We need to love our wives this way. For me, I sit there, and part of me is almost like, that's such a tall order, I don't even know if I should even attempt, because I'm afraid of failure. I'm one of those guys who... I really fear failing. So if I'm already set up to maybe not even be able to do this well, I, should I even attempt? The, the answer is yes, we should. But to love Maureen exactly as Christ loves those he died for, that's crazy. And But what we see in it, verse 25, loving as Christ does is all about loving sacrificially, loving humbly, putting others first, all while submitting to God. So I give up my desires as Jesus gave up his desires himself for us, but to love Maureen by being compassionate, understanding, honoring her in all situations, as it says in 1 Peter 3, 7, knowing that they're co-heirs with me, knowing that Maureen is a co-heir with me. Why should I love Mo in this way? Because so my prayers to the Lord won't be blocked. This is what you were talking about, Mike, earlier. Like We are to love our wives this way, to love her in such a way that I won't cause a rift between her and God or between me and God. That's a tall order. And then finally, to love her in a way that sacrifices. Mike, can you take us through how do we love our wives as Christ loves us, and how do we present her to God without this spot or blemish, as some of the scriptures say? Oh, absolutely. The key to it is the very first verse, be imitators of God. Yeah. You lead from the front. You don't command from the back and give orders. You have to be out in front. And when you look about whether it's leading a ministry or leading a family or leading your marriage relationship, you have to be the first one over the wall and say, do as I do, not do as I say. Mm. So you have to lead from the front sacrificially, and it's done by a choice. No one accidentally loves his wife. It has to be done intentionally, <laughs> uh, and sometimes you have to give when you have a need, and sometimes you have to bite your tongue when your immediate response is to think that zinger is not to give the zinger. And we're commanded not to do it haphazardly. In fact, we're given very specific instructions on how to do it, and even though it's difficult or in the flesh it's impossible, it doesn't mean the commandment still doesn't hold. So we're commanded to do this. Uh, talking about the presenting without spot or blemish goes to the story I shared with you some time ago when the Holy Spirit brought this passage to my mind very profoundly. And it has impacted how I've treated my wife ever since. Hmm. 
when our son was born in 2007, you know, I was working in ministry. I was on staff at a church, and I came home. We had, we did a Thursday night service, so I got home like at 9:30, and I uh, was tired. It was a very long day, and and she had had a long day with our son, who wasn't on a sleep schedule yet, and she was just venting on how difficult the day was with this child who won't sleep when he's supposed to sleep, and he cries, and this, and I said, not thinking it through. <laughs> I simply said, for someone who requires more patience right now, you're not very good at giving it. Mm. And she looked pale white. Her face dropped. And it was like very sullen. And she said, that is the cruelest thing anyone has ever said to me. <laughs> and she was serious. Yeah. And I was thinking, that wasn't cruel. <laughs> I have said cruel things in the past. But I realized because I was her husband and because I loved her so much and she loved me so much, I had the power to wound her deeply carelessly Mm. and then the holy spirit brought this passage to mind that i'm supposed to be presenting her back to the lord spotless without blemish just as christ does the church and how do i do that i do that by not wounding her you blemish and spot your wife by saying careless things thoughtless things by being unkind and we're commanded to love our enemies how much more are we supposed to love the wife that god's given us as our Mm. helpmate first corinthians 7 shares that our bodies are not our own they belong to our spouse so we have to live that way. Hmm. So talking about the yielding, there's lots of times in marriage where you may not feel like doing the sacrificial thing. But yes, when you have to choose to do it, not because you want to, because you're commanded to do it. And then the response, though, is a very vibrant marriage. At least from my perspective, I think we have the best marriage of anybody we know. Hmm. And I do lots of marriage counseling and lots of couples. But that doesn't happen by accident. So Susan... We were talking before we started today. You didn't necessarily remember that story. Sometimes God protects us from remembering things. But how have you seen Mike grow from those early moments when you guys were first married, once you were released, but also even with children coming into the scene of your marriage? Like, How have you seen Mike grow and become a better version of himself from then to now? Mike came home in March of 2006, and we got married in July of 2006. So we did not have a lot of actual one-on-one time together before we got married. And because we'd become Christians while he was in prison, we were seeking to have a godly engagement as it was. We weren't spending 24 hours a day, seven days a week together. So it was a, a great learning curve at first. And then because I was 40, we started wanting, we wanted to have children off the get-go because we didn't have the luxury of time. Really, it was such a lot of relationship compressed into such a short amount of time. So it was being thrown into the deep end and then retroactively realizing that we needed to apply, I needed to apply scripture to my role as his wife. And I was very blessed when I was probably like a five-year-old baby Christian to be in a Bible study with other women. And I never really fought Ephesians 2 through 35 too much because I didn't know all the drama that surrounds that really because I was a baby Christian. So what I heard first in the Bible study was Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that really shaped a lot of what I tried to do totally imperfectly and sinfully, but I tried to approach things that way. It made sense to me to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if that was my husband, it made sense that two people can't win, so to speak. So I am... I'm very opinionated, and I do think that God used that in our relationship. I think if I wasn't a a stronger person, how God made me, that we would never have made it through the 17 years of being in prison. But I knew that two people can't win, and ultimately it made sense to me that husbands and wives, employers, employees, children, parents, there needs to be an ultimate 
decision maker. So that made sense to me. And looking at Mike, that was actually a game changer because Mike had said all the years that he was in prison, it would always come back to, if you hadn't made these decisions, you wouldn't be in prison and I wouldn't be going to things by myself and I wouldn't be doing things by myself. And You would it, say those things to I Mike. would say those to Mike yeah. and kitchen sinking everything when he would have to tell me bad news. And he would say to me all the time, I wish you could see the decisions I make every single day in prison mm. because you would see that I'm not the person who I was when I was making those decisions. Most importantly, I wasn't a Christian when I was making those decisions and now I'm a Christian. And... I understood what he was saying on a cognitive level, but to see that lived out has just been a great thing to see him making those decisions every single day as a husband, as a father, sacrificially giving his time when he's got so many amazing, dramatic counselings happening on a daily basis of people who are truly making life and death decisions. And then we have to come home and talk about Algebra 1 and (laughs) English 5. And to see him transition and be gracious to listen to our daughter talk endlessly about babies, how she loves them, and our son talking about Chinese, he can just rearrange everything so he's always showing the sacrificial love he's choosing to listen to things that are even we know are relatively inconsequential when he's got all of these life-changing things going on so it's living that out when you come home after a busy day so you you guys have been married how long now yeah just almost 16 years i'm really glad you answered that mike and i didn't it's really important That's great. He's the date person. That'd be 16 years in July. He, he is the date guy. I definitely learned that about Mike. Well, one of the things that, um, you know, we talk about this a lot just as guys. We we are quick to tell it like we're not perfect. And we know that, Mike, you're not perfect, even though you've come a long way in your life. And you share those stories a lot. But I think it's important for us to be able to say, like, that story that you shared, Mike, like, you messed up. You made your wife feel horrible. But... Susan, would you say that you've seen Mike grow from that mistake that he shared and it, you, you can see him differently today in a similar scenario that he would be, he would respond differently today, do you think? I, I think he, 100% of the time, he very much takes that second before he speaks to think of the big picture. I, I would say he's always thinking of the big picture. How will my next five minutes affect how my son is feeling, how my daughter is feeling, how my wife is feeling? Honestly, no matter the day, he is always thinking of us. And just he's, I think he's just constantly putting himself in our shoes. And I, I think Honestly, that scenario must go through your head often because he really does choose just the Holy Spirit thing. He chooses to do the better thing. Hmm. Mike, what makes you do that? Well, first of all, the sovereign God of the universe commanded me to. <laughs> I think it's a good reason. But I was so deeply convicted when that incident took place that I intentionally, and I think the Holy Spirit really pressed upon my heart, to make a vow never to do that again. It's been 15 years. I don't think I've ever said, I'm not going on what here, an unkind thing to my wife since then actively trying not to say. And that's the difference. There's been times when my children are playing and he's big and he's strong and he'll do something that injures my daughter accidentally. And he'll say, it was an accident. I didn't mean to do it. And I said, but you didn't mean not to do it. Mm. You're called to try not to do it. And that's where you failed. Mm. So in this situation, you can't be thoughtless. It's easy to say, oh, I didn't think about that. Well, we're commanded to think about it. We're commanded not to be thoughtless. It's an active uh, decision on our part not to say and do careless things and try to give yourself a pass or an excuse for being unkind. Yeah. I remember Maureen and I were married maybe three months. And the first three months of our marriage was bliss. It was amazing. And then I made a stupid comment that made like the next eight months really difficult. And the comment was this. I said, and I'm going to throw myself hugely under the bus. All of our listeners, if you hear this, please don't. I am not the same man I I was then. So what I'm about to say, 
I'm revealing to my to you guys that um, because I, because I, I think that we need to be honest with ourselves and be able to say, wow, I'm not the only guy who has either thought this or made this stupid comment to my wife. We were in an argument because I was frustrated for a long time, probably three months, but didn't share it. I didn't communicate to my wife that I was frustrated that some things were not getting done. And I don't even think that she knew that I, she didn't know I was frustrated. And so I shared with her one day, I said, now this was 21 years ago almost. And I said, I think that you should really love doing the laundry. You can laugh, Mike. It's okay. <laughs> I, I said, I think the, like you should love doing the dishes. And she was like, what? It was like this enormous. Well, the, the, so for me, my grandparents were a great example of what a healthy marriage was. And my grandmother seemed to love doing the dishes, to love, you know, making dinner, to love while grandpa was playing with everybody. So I, I projected that onto to my marriage. Like, well, that's just what it should be because I want a healthy marriage. And that, that was one that I knew that was healthy. I thought Mo and I, she immediately called our pastor. Our pastor came up, drove 30 minutes, came up to our house and like that night. And he worked with us through this. And what was revealed in that moment was, wait a minute, you're, you don't even know if that was a healthy marriage, A, and is it healthy for that to be within a marriage? That's what the wife does. And the answer is no, that's not healthy. And so then we started talking about it in our family, about what happened. Come to find out, grandma, grandma had passed away at that point. Grandma did not love doing the dishes. She did not, but she chose to do it with a joyful spirit. And I was like, oh. And then my buddy said, so that means, Scott, you can do the dishes with a joyful spirit. It doesn't have to be the wife. And I was like, oh. That's beautiful. That's brilliant. But we learn from our mistakes to say, wait a minute. Now I have to put this through the filter. Susan, you said Mike thinks about it now before I speak to make sure. And if I'm not sure, I should talk to other people and get wise counsel on my thought process. Yeah, and it goes back to what you're talking about here, being imitators of Christ and being the servant leader. When we first got married, I told her, let's pick two of the worst chores there are to do cleaning the toilet, cleaning the floor in the bathroom, doing the dishes. Those are my jobs. Mm. I did them for other people while I was in prison. I will certainly do them for you. And from the time I got married to today, she never had to clean the toilet because I wanted to be the servant leader. If you're going to be the head, and that's where headship, people try to, in our culture, project the CEO mentality. Yes. I call shots, you listen to me. Hierarchy, head yeah. down. Yeah. That's not Middle Eastern, 2,000-year-ago nope. culture. This is agrarian culture. The headship they're talking about here is like the fountainhead, the person who is the nurturer and the cultivator in the relationship. It's not the, the hard-charging demander. It's the person who is encouraging and influencing and nurturing and cultivating. Yep. If you're being encouraged to do something and the person who's encouraging you is doing it with you or in front of you, it's easier to say, yeah, For sure. I'll follow you. Yeah, that's fascinating. I've always thought this passage, verse 25 says, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church.'" and gave himself up for her. And there's this element of there's a leadership here, but you look at Christ on earth, just his lifestyle, and I don't think it's anyone looks at that who's maybe biased or kind of looking for something that would satisfy their ego to model. And they're like, that's who I want to be. That guy was the man down here. It's like he lived a pretty humble and meek life. And mm. we understand like his supremacy and his sovereignty and all of that. But the way like he washed his servants feet, the, w the fact that he died for everyone, like he constantly truly lived as the least of these, we would say. 
And I think, man, to say as a husband, I'm called to that. There's like a sobering that happens. Like it shouldn't, it's empowering, but there's also almost a gulp moment of this is a real servant leadership. And I, that's an incredible way to model that. I've never heard anyone say I took the worst chores before. Well, we make a vow. When we get married, we're making a covenant with God first, and then with our spouse, that you're going to love this woman the way Christ loved the church, willing to die for her. And if I'm willing to lay down my life for her, why wouldn't I want to serve her while I'm here? And that's a, a vow you make to God, and God takes those vows pretty seriously. Well, and, you know, our, our podcast is all about pressing on to, to be all that God's called us to be. And I just want to encourage our listeners, if you were where I was or where Mike was, when we first made those awful mistakes, the comments that we made that really hurt our wives in the moment, and listen, there's consequences to those. Sometimes those hurts may last a little while, and we have to rebuild that trust, and that's important to do. But we can grow. We can become a better version of ourselves tomorrow than we are today, and it's about being self-aware. It's about surrounding ourselves with people who are maybe further ahead than we are, that discipleship mindset, but also being able to really evaluate what am I doing and then start to make changes in how I'm, I'm doing these things. And I know that, Mike, you've done that, and I just wish that you were around my life 21 years ago and you could have said, hey, don't step in that pile <laughs> of food. Don't say that ever, Scott. But I think when we do say those things or we mess up, it gives us a chance to grow and do life differently. What about uh, verse 28? It says this. It says, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. We're not going to put bad food in our bodies, or maybe we do, but we shouldn't, right? Like we're called to give our, our, our bodies good, nourishing nutrients and, and not too much fat and not too much this and have a good balance. How do you do that for Susan? Everyone has to be intentional about that. We feed ourselves regularly. So I do try to actively, as she mentioned earlier out there, I do study her. I've been studying her for 30 years, the things that she likes, things she doesn't like. I'm very verbally reaffirming. So you guys in the studio can see she's a very attractive woman. So Throughout the course of the day, I will tell you. Just, you just totally embarrass. Our listeners can't see, <laughs> but you totally embarrass Susan. But go ahead. So I, I will but it's true, though. continually affirm how she looks and how she acts and how she makes me feel, just being around her. Very, And it comes naturally because it's very easy when you're around somebody who's very attractive. But then I also try to seek to build her up. She is a very intelligent woman. She's a great mother. She's a very devoted wife. Those things don't have my accident either. So this is a, it's a two-way street. So it... Once you try to outlove one another and get into a competition of seeing how much you can love the other person, it makes you want to get engaged in that competition. So we, we do that within ourselves as a couple. So what I have found out is as you are obedient to the scriptures and do the things God calls you to do, your wife will respond in kind. You know, men need to be respected. If you treat your wife lovingly, sacrificially, she will respect you. How could she not? What happens in passages like this, the husband wants to demand submission, yeah. demand respect without giving the love first, yep. the sacrificial love first. Mm. So the, we're called as men to lead sacrificially. If we do that part, the Holy Spirit will definitely direct your wife to come alongside and do her role. Yeah. But part of it too, I think from the woman's perspective, it is easier. We're commanded to submit, but it is easier to submit when your husband takes you along with the thought process. And I think that's where it's been a 30-year learning curve because we've learned to communicate better. Because if I know where he's going with the decision or with the area of communication, it's much easier to submit. So it's easy. Part of our journey was 
for instance, when he went on, when he came home, he went on staff at uh, the church that he was on staff with. I think the congregation saw us as being this like Cinderella couple. He came home from prison. We got married. It's awesome. And we have these two kids. And I truly believe that part of our journey with like breast cancer, having a child with special needs was a little bit of people seeing us having to work out our faith in front of them. And so part of that came along with the con- communication aspect because people always think our relationship is always all together. And this was not even a month ago, I would say, is that Mike came to me and he said, I really feel like we need to work on res- how you say things to me, like respecting, because as a wife and a mom, I'm like, okay, you have to do algebra. You have to do, you know, you, this list of things when we And then come Mike, in, you need to do X, Y, and Z. This list <laughs> right? of things when he all walks the in the door, <laughs> all the shoulds, this list of things when he comes in the door, because I'm thinking all day long, I know our son's assignments, I know our daughter's assignments, I know what we have to do. So it's very easy for me to be like the director of what's going on and to not say things to Mike in a way that is respectful of his time or what he was had planned. So on the flip side, if he, as the man, as the person who is to be submitted to, my input as far as the wife would be just a little communication goes a long way. Like he'll say, I just need two minutes to finish this project. And I'm like, I didn't know you were doing a project. If he communicates with me, okay, from now until nine o'clock, this is what I need to accomplish in my own job or my own life or whatever the case may be. I can better fit in what else I think needs to be done. But for myself as a wife, communicating that respectfully for what he's thinking on his plate, but for him as the husband, realizing that I need more information. We see it all the time. If I'm like in the passenger seat next to him and he's like, can you send a text about whatever it is? Literally, someone will say, I, need, I have an emergency. Can you meet me in an hour? And he'll say, please tell him I can't do it. And I'm thinking as the wife, you can't do it because you're on your way to do a funeral. There's more information to be given. So I feel like that's beneficial so that the person knows. Anyways, I think as the wife's perspective, I would just say it's you can increase the ease of the submission if you increase the communication with your wife. And just tell the wife just a few minutes about what's happening in your own life because then the wife will say easily, I think most wives can let their shoulders down and say, got it. I'll come back in 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. But That's if good. I don't know that, then he feel he perceives it as being, I'm not respecting his time, but I perceive it as being like, I can't read your mind. Yeah. But also, we have to trust God's sovereignty too. God brings us together with our spouses. And the way I look at things, we've been married uh, for almost 16 years. We've been together 30 years. We've never had a situation where we disagreed and I had to make that cast a deciding vote. Yep. That's never been in, in any decision we've ever made as a couple. Yep. Same because here. I believe that God gave Susan to me as my helpmate and if I can't convince the woman who loves me most, who God gave me to be my counselor and my advisor, that this is a good decision, it's probably not a good decision. Mm-hmm. I would say that more than half, I will take a situation to Mo and I'll be like, hey, what do you think? And her insight and wisdom will change my mind. And so if I would have made that decision in a hierarchy, that would have been bad. It would have been really bad. And I invite her in and she wants me to invite her in and God calls us to invite her in, Right to help us make those decisions. And for you, I loved your description as what, what Middle Eastern leadership is, and that's really important for us to understand. But one of the things that you said I want to take us back to is studying your wife. We talked prior to this about the five love languages. What That book, The Five love, love Languages by Gary Chapman, how has that impacted you in the way that you study your wife? That book was critical in our relationship. I was still in prison uh, when I think Gary Chapman came to Parkside Church and spoke, and then Sue sent me the book. We went through it together, and it was very instructive. It's, it teaches you about yourself, which is important, because I was loving her the way I wanted to be loved, yeah. and she was doing the same thing. We were loving past each other. So that book forced us to stop and do an evaluation 
and then to actively choose. Acts of service is one of her love languages. So cleaning the toilets and doing the dishes are acts of service that she perceives in it. I'm sacrificially loving her in that way. It would never have occurred to me, and that's not the household I grew up in either. So those are choices you have to make against culture. As long as culture's not against the scripture, then you're free to move. So that book was tremendously in in influential, and I use it for every pre-marriage counseling session I do with any yeah. couple I work with. Yeah, me too, and, and I would say that book saved my marriage. We were headed for a very rocky marriage. If not, I don't know if we would have survived it 21 years later, almost 21 years later, but that book really saved our marriage because it taught me, I think my wife does a much better job of loving me naturally than I do loving her naturally. This book taught me how to love her the way that she needs to be loved. And you have to study her in order to learn that. The test tells you how they need to be loved, but to actually, like when you do the dishes and you see the way that Susan responds, just her body language, I'm sure, changes when she sees you doing those things and serving her that way. For, for us, with me and Maureen, it's quality time. I don't know about you, Jordy. For us, like when I give Mo that quality time, it's amazing the difference in, in how my wife feels. And she feels valued. And even the way she responds to the kids is different because I'm loving her the way that she was designed to be loved. And it, But it, it's not easy, right? It's hard, but that is how you nourish your wife for the Lord. That's how you do it in the Lord. But it's honestly, it's putting sweat in the game, right? Mm. Because it's one thing to say to your wife, like he would say to me, hey, when the kid, when we put the kids to bed, I want it to be just you and I. That sounds great, except for the laundry's still going on and the dishes are still here and I still have to sweep the floor and I have this list of things I need to do in my mind. So to see him value our time together after the kids go to bed, by doing the dishes while I'm doing homework with our daughter. That shows me he's invested. He's not just telling me what to do. He's helping me to get there awesome. at the end of the night. So I think that's critical. Like you just can't say I want time with you at nine when there's stuff that needs to be done and it can't be done during the day. You can't do the dishes before you've used them. And our spouses don't come with manuals, you know, so <laughs> right. we, you, you can't know the things that she needs unless you study those things out yep. and then put them into practice. Just like this passage, Ephesians 5, you can't obey this passage if you don't know it's here. If you never studied it, there's hundreds of commands in the Bible. And there's promises that come along with those who fulfill those commandments. But if you don't do and don't, or you're not aware of what you're supposed to be doing, you'll never reap the benefit of it. So that's why I think making a study of your spouse and seeking out the information that you need to make her feel loved is essential. You know, Mike, I think you're awesome. I really do. I've told you that many times. But I agree with you, what you told me on the phone last, me and Jordy on the phone last time. Your wife is better than you. Absolutely. <laughs> she is. She is. Susan, I love the insight you're providing us today. You are awesome. And I love that God gave you to Mike and Mike to you because you guys do make a dynamic couple. But let, lastly, this is what is so interesting to me. In all of this, we're reading this. And as you're reading and even listening to what we're talking about today, you're like, wow, like Jesus downloaded some amazing stuff to Paul for us to understand about marriage. And then he flips it, right? The Lord flips it and he says this in verse 32, this mystery is profound. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What? Wait a minute. I thought this was about <laughs> marriage, right? Yeah. Jordy, I'm going to put you on the spot here. How does this correlate? Like, how do we flip this? And what does that even mean? Now, all of this that we've learned about is about Christ and the church. We're supposed to imitate God from that all the way down to loving the Lord the way that he loves us. Like, how do we even 
do this? How do we live that out? Or what does this mean to us today? Oh, geez. To, to avoid a sermon, I'll try, to, <laughs> I'll try to keep this short. I think that we can't really grasp God. And so I think he gives us clues. Like when he says, I'm a good father, we're given family, we're given marriage as these avenues to deeper understand like God's love for us, you know, what it means for him to give up Jesus, what it would mean for us to give up a child. There's all these pictures. And I think that marriage is just that. You learn a little bit being a husband, what it's like to be Jesus in a way. Like, and you start to understand like, oh my gosh, the way Jesus loves us and loves his church. Like, it's unreal. And I think that's just it, is to attempt these things and to attempt doing them the way God calls us helps us to really understand what a perfect God we have. Mm. That's good. I, I You did not know I was going to throw that at you. So you did a, you did a great <laughs> job with that. Thanks for bringing that to us. Well, Mike, you, you guys have weathered some curveballs, to say the least, in your relationship. You didn't share some of the other ones that we've talked about. I mean, I think being incarcerated for 17 years and, and weathering that storm and getting married after that, like that, that in itself blows me away, to be honest with you. I, I don't, that's only of God that you guys did that, that the Lord called you to that and that you guys were able to weather that and not just weather it, but, but really be f- incredibly fruitful from that and through it. But what are some of the other things that God has taught you during the last many years of your life together and how God's designed marriage and what it does for each one of you. Our testimony is amazing, truly, but people think, gee, it's been rainbows and pots of gold ever since. We were married and involved in ministry and became kind of a higher profile minister in Northeast Ohio. We have a son. And then when we had been married for three years, my wife was pregnant and eight and a half months into her pregnancy, she was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. And she had to be induced to have our baby early, which happened, she was born on April 30th, and we spent the 12 hours prior to her birth researching cancer and cancer treatments and pregnancies with, with wow. cancer. And then our daughter was born with a host of medical complications, ended up in the intensive care unit for several months after she was born. Uh, she ended up having to have a feeding tube. She uh, was hooked to wires and had to be held upright for two hours at a time when she was being fed while we were going off to chemo treatments. Mm. You know, so it was a very tumultuous time. I was still working at the church. I was still doing my job. I was executive pastor at that point. So people watched us go through a crisis, yeah. a significant crisis. You know, the cancer treatments lasted for months. We had there was chemotherapy, and then for a while, my after her first chemotherapy, my wife went neutropenic. She ended up in intensive care unit. So at one point, I had my daughter and my wife in two separate intensive care units wow. at the same hospital system, and it took months for that to resolve. And so when it was all done, so to speak, and our daughter was home and my wife was done with uh, cancer treatments, active treatments at that point, I preached my first message at the church on how not to go through a storm, how people, <laughs> things people want to do to help, it's not very helpful. Uh, so people got to watch us. You hear the testimony, but then you get to see. And one of the things we talked about is had not we gone through the 17 years of trials and learning how to communicate and learning how to trust God when things were hard and it didn't make sense and there was no future view, he taught us to trust him anyways. So going through cancer with a daughter with special needs was a lot easier knowing we could trust him. Hmm. I I was taking notes during our first conversation and on your guys's marriage I wrote durable. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll buy anything that I think I can't break. That's a big <laughs> selling point and so I'm very just sold on a lot of stuff that you guys are preaching. And how have like these tough circumstances 
contributed to a marriage? Obviously, you wouldn't wish for these things, but how have they contributed to a marriage that you wouldn't trade for anything? Yeah, for me, if we had been married before I was saved, before we went through everything else we went through, we've been divorced. I would have been a horrific husband. Mm. I came from a very hot-headed, alcoholic family. I was a drinker. I had a hot temper. I was very selfish. So if it wasn't for the circumstances we went through, had I not become a Christian, had she not been saved, had we not learned how to be Christians first, and then spouses, we would have had a terrible marriage. Because hmm. right? that's what I that's what was modeled in my family. So I'm thankful for that 17 years in prison that equipped me to become the man I'm today. And I'm still, believe me, for, for your, your listeners out there, I am not perfect. I make mistakes continuously. It's a work in progress, my <laughs> wife will say. Hearty amen yeah. over there. And I think this is so basic, but it's important to point out. I think a lot of us can fall into this, like, I need to get it together because I'm a Christian. I need to get it together for Jesus. But here you guys are saying, like, Jesus really pulled us together and set us up to be on this path. And that's an incredible thing. Like, we need to lean into God in order to navigate these things. Well, the great thing is it literally is every single day. And the beautiful thing about grace and forgiveness is you ask for it when it needs to happen, whether it's with Mike or whether it's with our children, recognizing your uh, mistake that you've made, stopping it in the moment and and asking for forgiveness. I make mistakes constantly, especially as a a wife and a mother. And knowing that my husband is a Christian and knowing that we're raising our children in a Christian home, just knowing that you can immediately go, that was not what I should have done. Will you forgive me? Is such a blessing to be able to experience and to be able to model that because you're, you know, we're, we're one sinner married to another sinner. And so we're going to have those uh, episodes or incidents, whatever it is, happen every day. But just being able to know that grace and that forgiveness is immediately to your access if we choose to access it and to model that for our children and to allow them to see how God is present every moment. And you have to let go of the expectation that things are going to be perfect, but to know that you can go to your spouse and go, you know what, I, sh- I really should have done that differently. And to go to our children and do the same thing. It's the next right thing, as Elizabeth Elliot would yeah. say, or to paraphrase. I think the one thing that's so powerful, what you mentioned is whenever I tell Mo, I'm really sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that, or I shouldn't have done that, or I should have been home earlier, or, and, and that I'm really sorry, I literally see her shoulders drop most of the time and then follow up with will you forgive me and this is something i've been learning lately is to then say i'm going to work really hard to change that right because our wives need to know that that you're not okay with staying there because god calls us to not stay but the sanctified life living that sanctification out it we're required to continue going after being more and more set apart more and more like jesus giving him more territory of those areas of our lives that aren't like him. And that's really what pressing on is about. And what one of the things that I love is that you guys have modeled that in your marriage, going from probably one of the worst times that you could ever think of in, in a life, Mike, and to, to where you guys are today. It is a story that you could have never believed that could have ever been written. And speaking of writing, Mike, you're an author. You have five books out there, right? Were all five written while you were incarcerated? They were. All five were written when I was in prison. Uh, the last three were published after I was released from prison, which is a whole other story. The first two were published while I was in prison under a pen name, and that pen name didn't hold. And then after it was known that it, Mike, Michael Andrew was Michael Swiger, I got a lot of press, which is not what you want before you go to the, the parole board. So right. I intentionally waited till I came home, and I got an agent, and those books came out over the first few years when I was home. Can you tell? just tell us briefly what those books are about? Are they... 
Are they historical? Are they fiction? What is it? I wrote, I don't have much time for writing anymore, but I wrote uh, Christian Evangelical Murder Mysteries. Kind of like Dateline. Yes. Well, like a John Grisham with the gospel in him. Yeah. I deal with abortion from a pro-life perspective. I deal with uh, political issues from a conservative Christian position. And the gospel is presented. My intent was for someone to be entertained, but also have the chance to get saved. So you can give a book to a a non-believing friend saying, hey, you may not be able to witness to this person, but hey, this is a legal thriller. Keep you on the edge of your seat. And then you see one character sharing the gospel and leading them even in prayer. So the intent was to entertain, but to, to get the message across. So That's I write, cool. And the most recent three were all set in Cleveland, all in and around Cleveland. So what are the names of the five books? Uh, a Trial of Innocence, A Murder of Innocence, Lethal Ambition, Lethal Objection, and To Kill a Saint. Mike, thank you. Susan, thank you for being with us today. This, this is so powerful for us. You, you guys shared some great wisdom for us and for our listeners. So thank you for taking time out of your incredibly busy lives. No, our privilege. To come and just share with us and our listeners how we can really, truly live out Ephesians 5 and why we should. And just some practical, like, this can be done. We can do this, but we do have to take those steps to continue to press on to become a better version of ourselves tomorrow than we are today. So, guys, thank you so much. No, you're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right, listeners, next month we have uh, a really awesome topic that I'll be presenting to you in a couple weeks through our bumper. We have one of the hosts of the morning show on 103.3. He'll be joining us next month, but we will have a bumper that will precede that. So listen out for that coming up in two weeks. See you then.